welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. On the pod this week, our Washington Editor, Steve Usden, brings us the latest in the selection process for the FDA Commissioner Post. Stephen Hansen joins us from the UK to spotlight the German biotech scene. And Simone's with us to dig into new modalities on the market in the wake of an approval of a new DMD drug. But first, BioCentury This Week is brought to you by ICON, helping emerging biopharma meet their milestones to market. ICON offers a flexible partnership model for biotechs, acting as a fully externalized project development team, starting in the preclinical phase to clinical research to real-world studies through to commercialization. Learn more at iconplc.com biotech. Icon certainly was busy last week. We'd be remiss not to note that they have posted one of the largest deals in the past few months with a proposed $12 billion takeout of its fellow CRO, PRA Health Sciences. The deal combines Icon's Accelerware site network, home health services and wearables expertise with PRA's mobile and connected health platforms and real world data and information services. As expected on Saturday, FDA granted emergency use authorization to J&J's COVID-19 vaccine. It gives the U.S. a third vaccine. Importantly, it's a single dose vaccine that is as effective at preventing hospitalizations and mortality as the two mRNA vaccines on the market. And looking out at the world, what's really cool about this is that J&J has pledged half of the doses to go to developing markets. Steve, you listened to the AdCom on Friday. Last week on the pod, you told us that you were hoping for something different out of this advisory committee meeting than we got from the two mRNA panels. Did we? Not really. I think that there wasn't much discussion of the really important issues, the things that people care about, like the fact that the top line efficacy against any infection was lower than it was for the mRNA vaccines. Questions about whether this vaccine should be reserved for particular populations or subpopulations, things like that. None of those things were discussed. I think that the reason that they weren't is because there was such a sense of urgency. The feeling I got is that everybody's thinking we're in a race against the virus. Deaths are down, but we're still experiencing over a thousand a day in the United States and certainly way more than that worldwide. There are concerns about variants. So the nation and the world really don't have the luxury of waiting for every question to be answered. The J&J vaccine does a good job of preventing serious disease, hospitalization, and death. And sure, yeah, there are a lot of unknowns. The most important, I think, are the duration of protection. No one knows how long it's going to work. Whether a second dose of the J&J vaccine or perhaps of a different vaccine would provide a substantial boost in efficacy. We're going to get answers for those eventually. But I think that the panelists and FDA didn't really want to have a lot of discussion of those issues because they don't want to fuel vaccine hesitancy. They just basically want to say, look, the public health imperative now is just to get this out there and get it in as many arms as possible. And then the next hurdle for the vaccine came on Sunday when CMS's ACIP panel discussed who would get access. Did they place any restrictions or priority orders on this? No, they didn't place any restrictions on it. And 
The CDC directors signed something also over the weekend to allow the U.S. government to start distributing it. There was some interesting discussion at the ACIP meeting about who might benefit most from it. One of the panelists commented and said, maybe the homeless, because it's harder to track people who are homeless to get them in for a second dose, for example, of the mRNA vaccines. If you've got a vaccine that, that's effective with just one dose, maybe that's a good population for it. My sense, though, is that it's just going to get thrown into the mix and deploy as quickly as possible just to try to get, again, to get vaccine in as many Americans as quickly as possible without differentiating between the one dose and the two dose, the mRNA and um, the viral vector from Johnson. Sounds good. Steve, last week you wrote a piece that caused something of a stir when you said support for Janet Woodcock for the FDA permanent commissioner post was slipping and that Josh Sharfstein was likely out of the running. Can you bring us up to speed on the latest? Yeah, so what I reported is that there's opposition from at least three Senate Democrats to naming Dr. Woodcock as commissioner on a permanent basis. The White House hasn't made a final decision. It, it isn't a done deal whether she's going to get it or not. What I did not report is that she's out of the running, though some people apparently took it that way. I, I think that the question the White House is going to have to consider is, are they willing to push her nomination through over the opposition of Democrats relying on the support of Republican senators? I think that if they wanted to do that, they certainly could. Dr. Woodcock's got strong support among a number of Republican senators and the majority of Democratic senators, but it isn't at all clear that the White House will choose to do that. So, Steve, given all the back and forth, if Woodcock does get approved to FDA commissioner, do you think the fact that it hasn't sailed through is going to in any way internally weaken her at FDA among the staff? No, I, I don't think so. Look, Scott Gottlieb also came under withering criticism during the confirmation process, and he was widely beloved at FDA. I think that the staff really felt a great deal of loyalty to him. And he won over his critics also. At the time that he left, I think that all of the members of Congress who had opposed his nomination in the first place and his confirmation were praising him. I think that there are people who oppose her, her nomination, her getting the job on a permanent basis, and they're likely to continue to oppose her regardless of what she does. Because the things that have generated the most controversy about Dr. Woodcock are things that have happened in the past. So she can't undo them. She can explain them. And the one issue that, that people have focused on is opioids in a sense that FDA contributed to the opioid abuse epidemic, and then it was too slow to take action to try to rein it in. And that happened during times when Dr. Woodcock was the director of CEDAR, the Center for Drugs. I think that if she's going to be confirmed, if she's going to get the job, she has to have an answer to the people who are criticizing her and FDA for what happened on opioids. I know that people in the industry and maybe people who are listening to this podcast have other issues that they're concerned about or that they're interested in. I haven't heard any of them from anybody on Capitol Hill, and I don't believe that any of them are substantial barriers to Dr. Woodcock's confirmation. One quick last thing on the opioid thing. Is it likely or possible that we'd see any form of mea culpa on the opioid thing? Any admission that it could have been handled differently? And if so, do you think that would satisfy her critics? I don't know what would satisfy her critics, and I don't know what Dr. Woodcock would say. I think that she would acknowledge that, that FDA made mistakes, and that I think anybody looking at it could say, with the benefit of hindsight, certainly, that there were things that could and should have been done differently. 
I don't think that's going to satisfy the people who are criticizing her. I don't think that the members of Congress who are opposing her are going to shift their position because of anything that she says. I also have to say, though, that she's got substantial support from not only from the biopharm industry, but also from the cancer community, from cancer physicians, from cancer researchers. And I think that has to be influential with President Biden, who has a special interest in cancer and knows personally some of the physicians who are pushing in favor of Dr. Woodcock. And how about from the other side of the aisle, Steve? I think that she's won the respect of a lot of Republican senators over the years. And I think that if the administration wanted to to get her through on the strength of a, a kind of coalition of Democrats and Republicans, they certainly could do it. Like I said at the beginning, though, I think it really isn't clear. I don't know one way or the other whether the White House would want to do it that way. One final point I would say is that there are considerations beyond Dr. Woodcock here. The Biden administration is going to need the support of all of the Democratic senators going forward for its legislative agenda beyond the confirmation of the FDA commissioner. And that's why I think there may be some hesitation as to whether they want to push this forward in face of opposition from Maggie Hassan and Joe Manchin and others. Steve, is there any clear third option then, if it's looking less likely that they would take that course to push her through? No, I don't know who the other candidates would be. What I have heard is that the White House put a plea out to its informal advisors in Washington policy arena and asked them for names. So I, I know that they're thinking about it anew and thinking, are there other people who would be good? It's a very tough position to fill because it's extraordinarily important right now, obviously. And there's a sense that they want to have someone who can hit the ground running, who knows the agency well. Thanks, Steve. Keep your eyes on biocentury.com and Steve's Twitter feed for the latest on the FDA commissioner appointment process. German biotech BioNTech has risen to global prominence in the past year for its COVID vaccine. So we thought it was high time to check in on the German biotech scene. Steven, has there been a BioNTech effect? Well, Jeff, there hasn't really been one yet. It's still maybe a little early to say that there's been any sort of halo effect. As one investor commented, German biotech scene is essentially like having a few very tall trees, and then there are just a lot of saplings. The question is, how do we get a larger number of trees to grow in Germany? What came out of this was one of the biggest issues is that there just aren't really any institutional investors that are willing to allocate money to healthcare in Germany. When it comes to trying to raise money, there just isn't really any capital that's being put into VC funds or put into any of the investors. And so therefore, there's just really been a dearth of money available beyond seed financing. The government has done, by most people's accounts, a reasonable job of providing seed capital, but everything that follows has been very difficult to come by. How did BioNTech do it? Right. And this is what I was going to say. What's happened was you have a couple sort of philanthropic or basically a couple billionaires that decided that biotech was a place they wanted to play, partly from their history of being in, in the business. So you have the Struman brothers and Giovanni Hopp, who have been very selective, but they've poured a lot of money, the Hopp into CureVac and the Struman brothers into BioNTech. 
they picked up these technologies and obviously picked them well because they've done fantastic. BioNTech is now a $27 billion company, CureVac an $18 billion company. I think you should also throw in the mix EvoTech here, which is probably an outlier company in many ways. Werner Landhauler, who's the CEO there, has done a remarkable job of keeping that company alive, changing its model, adapting and retaining investors. And so have they taken a different path, Stephen? Is what I'm trying to say is, are those big trees each trying to forge their own way in this landscape? Yeah, Has- they definitely all take in different models. The CureVax and BioNTechs, as I said, took a very deep-pocketed, stay private longer, almost more the unicorn tech approach, whereas EvoTech, as you rightly point out, took a basically more than a decade ago switch to a services model that they've now been able to expand and, and become basically one of the premier drug discovery outfits in the biopharma space. I think the markets have finally really started to appreciate that in the past couple of years because we've seen their stock price. When I was looking at it last week, it had been as low as three euros just three or four years ago, and now it's trading above 30. I think there's finally been some appreciation for what Werner's done at Evotech. But you're right. They're one of the few tall trees along with Morphosis and Kyogen. There really hasn't been much else other than a few venture deals where I'm sure the, the company's got good returns. But what we've also seen are issues of where either German IP has been exported to the US or other places and turned into new co's. Recent examples of that include Dewpoint Therapeutics or Quench Bio, where it was based on German IP, but they had a much easier time getting the financing and the management together in the US. So a couple of things there. One is, I just want to point out, Kyogen is also a services company. The top five, two of the ones you mentioned, are actually not known for creating therapeutics, which probably is different from the leaders in other regions in terms of percentage. I think the other thing I wanted to follow up on is what you said, because over and over and over again, I hear about the quality of German science. And for Netflix viewers who are enjoying Charité, it goes way, way back. I mean, you know, that's really a nice story about Koch and Ehrlich and Bering more than 100 years ago. But that's actually been maintained in Germany. There's a very strong tradition of high quality science. And I think one of the questions is, when you talk about the investors, do they look at Germany as you have to have German investors in order for German inventions to stay in Germany? Is there any reason why French LPs or other investors shouldn't be fostering that science? No, and and I wouldn't want anyone to misinterpret this as if there isn't any money going into Germany at all. There is growing interest, and you have firms like Forbion, LSP, and Dara Partners that all have either a partner or an office that is open in Germany. They are making investments. There just isn't a local strong foothold that you could view as like an anchor investor. I think it makes it much more on a case-by-case basis as to whether you can keep something in Germany or not. A recent example last year, there was a TCR company called T-Knife Therapeutics that attracted a Series A round. I think all of us would say looks just like any other high-quality Series A round globally. Had RA Capital and Versant leading it with Andera Partners as a seed investor. And they raised, I believe it was 60 or 70 million US. So it can be done. It's not to say that it can't be done. It's just, it's being done on a much lower frequency basis than I think we've seen elsewhere in Europe. And I think getting back to what Simone said, what's interesting also is to remember that Germany was really the birthplace of the pharmaceutical industry. And they were preeminent in industrializing science 100 years ago. They're not anymore. The center shifted. And I think it's a kind of a cautionary tale for the United States. It's not inevitable. I think if you looked at things back then, people would have 
imagined that Germany would always be at the forefront, that they would always be preeminent. People looking at things now in the United States probably also feel that way, but it's built on a delicate balance of public policies that need to be maintained to keep it that way or else the, the focus will shift away from the United States again. Steve, I think in terms of Germany, you're right. Well, Europe, I think there's cases where public policies can make a difference. And I think the UK, for example, has put a lot and certain other countries in Europe have put a lot of government money into trying to foster that ecosystem. But I think we can't also ignore the importance of the culture and the German academic culture is a great place to stay. If you get tenure there, the risk profile for trying to create a new company is very different from in some of the other countries. And I think, Stephen, you alluded to this in your story. Yeah, it was a point that Werner at Evotech made was, in some ways, you might even consider German academic basic science to be too well-funded, almost too cushy of a job, such that you didn't necessarily have the same incentives or draws for a professor to step outside of that comfort zone and go into company creation. The hope now, obviously, is that with the examples of BioNTech and CureVac, hopefully that might start to change, particularly with the CEO of BioNTech still being in a professorship. The hopes is that you can start to see that change. I didn't want this to be entirely negative either, because I think there are signs that things are getting better. Part of the problem is at least acknowledging the problem. And Germany, at least, I think has done that. They, they've started to realize that they need to create incentives for these institutional investors to invest in healthcare. And so they're doing that with what's called this future fund, where they're looking for basically to try and incentivize people to put money into VCs. So I, I think it's starting to move in the right direction. All right, let's leave it on that. And Stephen, of course, you'll be following this in the weeks and months and years to come. And perhaps we'll get BioNTech 2.0. Last week's FDA approval of Sarepta's Amandis 45 marks the sixth antisense drug to reach the milestone, a rate of just over one a year for the modality since the first from Sarepta was approved in 2016. It's also the eighth new modality drug to be approved in the past year, a sign the pace of new therapeutic formats making it to market is reaching a trot, if not yet a gallop. Simone. Yeah, I've been looking at approvals of new modality drugs where a new modality is not a small molecule or a traditional MAB. I think it's interesting because what you see when the first ones get approved, it takes a very long time for the first one. And then the question is, how much does approval of the first one become like a gateway or usher in easier times for the next molecules? There's actually six molecules of drugs on the market, uh, antibody drug conjugates, bispecific antibodies. I think of both of those as the first of the next generation antibodies. There's going to be next generation ones. There's nucleic acid-based therapies, which are gene therapies, antisense and RNAi. And then there's the first of what I think is going to be a big crop of types of cell therapy with CAR-Ts. And ADCs are almost not a new modality anymore. They're just coming through now at a steady clip. And importantly, they are coming through from a range of different companies. And almost every farmer wants one in its toolbox. Bispecific antibodies, on the other hand, have been much slower in coming. The first was Blincyto by Amgen in, I think, late 2014. 
then a couple of years later, Roche came through with Pem Libra. J&J has one that should probably get approved this year, which would just be three for bispecific antibodies. But our colleague Lauren Martz has been reporting how much activity there is in that field and think we might see that picture really start to change. But then when you look at the gene therapies, antisense and RNAi, what's going on there is that they're really almost all used for orphan diseases. Most of these modalities are in the hands of a single company. For example, there's four RNAIs approved, but they all came from alnylam. So it's really not yet a technology that we're seeing multiple companies able to take to market. That's great for alnylam, and I'm not sure how great it is for the world, but I do think that there is a proof of principle there. The last one I'll mention is CAR-Ts, which are all for cancer. And those ones, each new CAR-T for a long while is going to be its own story. They're all autologous. Will they go allogeneic? Will we soon see TCR-based cell therapies, stem cell therapies? So I don't know that the approval of these CAR-Ts necessarily creates a glide path for the next one. So I, 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 I want to jump in there because you started out and you mentioned Sarepta. There's a lot of controversy there. A senior FDA official once described Sarepta's products as a scientifically elegant placebo. I know that there's a lot of sense in the biotech community that the Sarepta's DMD drugs shouldn't have been approved and that the company has failed to follow through on its promises to confirm their efficacy. Right. Let me answer that first by saying within Antisense, there are three drugs now approved by Sarepta. Before I answer the Sarepta question, I want to point out that Ionis has two and there's Spinraza from Biogen on the market. So as a modality, I do think that there's enough there to say that the modality has got proof of principle, that companies can create therapeutics out of Antisense. In Sarepta's case, it is an outlier, and I, I think you're right, Steve, to point that out. First of all, all Sarepta's drugs are for DMD, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and they all use an exon skipping technology. The difference between them is where they skip in the exon. Oh, uh, which exon they skip? You're right. The original idea was that there would be confirmatory post-marketing studies that would really map between the biomarker, which is dystrophin levels, and outcomes. To date, there is an assumption that because dystrophin is the protein that is harmed or not present sufficiently in DMD, that if you create higher dystrophin levels, you will correct the disorder. That obviously makes a huge amount of sense. What we still don't know is what levels of dystrophin will actually create better outcomes for patients. And we don't know whether this is correctable or obviously you want to treat these kids as early as possible. The company really hasn't done a great job actually of answering that question. And that and is a cloud over that technology, not necessarily over the whole modality, but over that technology. And also as they tying it back to what we started with today, it's also a matter of controversy about Dr. Woodcock because she championed the original Sarepta approval and has been perceived as backing the company's products, even though they haven't really come through with the post-market confirmation trials that they promised to. I think it's important just to remember that the patient voice in this is their kids have nothing else. 
if this works and doesn't do any harm, let them try it. I mean, that is the basis of the controversy. And the idea is, you know, that's a very slippery slope. And that's an argument that actually won't really be resolved until they actually prove that it works. But the idea here is that patients are saying you can't withhold something that could actually be extremely good, even if it takes a long while to get there. And you have to have some sympathy, at least for that argument. I'm not espousing one or the other. I just want to make sure that it's clear that allowing Certainly me. fair to say there, Simone. And Steve, obviously that needed to be brought up there. All right. Ahead this week on Biocentury.com, senior editor Lauren Martz is digging into the Bayer deal-making strategy. Once thought of as one of the more buttoned-up pharmas, the company is now getting into cell and gene therapy via BD with a focus on building manufacturing capacity. We'll also bring you our regular features such as our daily data bite and the latest from our emerging company profile series. This week, senior editor Karen Tkach Tuzman profiles Austrian protein degradation company Proxygen. Meanwhile, the biosentry team is prepping for our 21st Bioequity Europe conference, which will be an all digital event scheduled for May 17th to 19th. This year's theme, Europe's Next Act. European innovators help pave the way for the world's first COVID-19 vaccines. What's coming next from Europe's academic and biotech leaders? You can register for Bioequity and learn more at bioequityeurope.com. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.